So you may know this, you may not know this. Um, my family has been involved in foster care now for some time. Um, it's a way that we feel, the way that we are right now, that we can begin to influence and push back against darkness. And what I have found, and I think all of us in my family, is when you allow in things like that, hard things, something really good happens to you. Um, it's like Hebrews 4.15 that says this. It says that because Jesus left his place of comfort, left eternity, left what's easy, and came and lived and dwelled with us, it says that now he has sympathy upon us in our condition. And I find the same thing happens to me, that when I open myself up to that, what happens is I have this incredible sympathy for people that are in those circumstances. So it's been really good for me. So right now, um, we have two, and uh, their names are Hunter and Harrison. Uh, Hunter is a three-year-old, great, great kid. And we had Hunter for a little while when his younger brother Harrison was born, and tragically, he was born addicted to heroin. So he went to the NICU at RVMC where they had to give him morphine for a period of time and wean him off of heroin. So it's, it, it was a hard thing. Um, if you're not following the opioid crisis right now, it's unbelievable. Um, it's being called the worst drug problem in American history. Uh, so a couple, a week ago, I think, I sent an article to all the pastors um, it's an article that came out of the Cincinnati. It's a paper where they send in 60 reporters into that little city. It's not a massive city. And they, the reporters just walked through what happens in one week because of heroin. It's unbelievable. It you, you can Google it. It's a long read. It's heartbreaking. And that's happening not just there, but in every city right now throughout our country. It's really, really sad. And I'm also reading this book, this book called American Pain, which says... The pharmaceuticals have a play in this. They have pushed something really through legislation and other ways that have led to the problem we're seeing right now. All right, so Harrison, born addicted to heroin, just tough. My wife is going over there, um, staying the night there sometimes, just visiting him all the time. So at some point, we decided it was four or five days after he was born, we're going to take Hunter and introduce him to his new little brother. So it was a Tuesday night and I grabbed Hunter, he's three. And I said, Hunter, do you want to go over and meet your new little brother, Harrison? And Hunter said, no, I don't want him. You can put him back. <laughs> he loves him now. He just, I don't think he quite understood the scope of what happened to his life. Uh, so um, we, we, they weaned him off and we brought Harrison, um, the, the little baby, I call him Harry or Esau. It's, you know, it's what it means, so <laughs> he's going to be kind of wondering what his name is. So we brought him home, and it was less than a week. We're in our house, and my family's all kind of gathered in the living room, and there's Hunter, three-year-old, doing his thing, and Harrison, obviously, two-week-old baby. And one of my daughters looks and says, Mom, Dad, if the family can't get it worked out, would we adopt these two? Without one second of delay, my wife said, yes. I'm like, 
What? Hello? <laughs> I mean, come on. I'm going to be like 90 before the last one graduates to become like this, you know? I mean, really? <laughs> Aren't we supposed to talk about that? <laughs> it just shows my wife's heart, giant heart. I mean, unbelievable. He wakes up all the time in the night. He's just working through some hard things. And I actually sleep in the garage right now. It's the only quiet place in our home because she's up feeding him, doing, oh, it's insane, okay? So that all sets up what happened uh, to me last Thursday. So not this Thursday, two Thursdays ago, week and a half ago. Um, I had finished studying for the day and I came in, it was four o'clock or so, and I come into my house and my wife, because she's up all the time, getting almost no sleep, she's taking a nap on the couch Little baby Harrison is in those, that little rocker thing and he's starting to wake up. So he's kind of a little, crying a little bit. So I come in tiptoe in, grab Harrison and then I go outside because I want my wife to sleep a little bit. Uh, so I go, that, that's really healthy in this time. So I go outside with Harrison. He loves it outside. Like he just, everything becomes great when he's outside. And it was one of those beautiful days where it's not that hot, but it's still sunny and blue skies. It's just a brilliant day. And I'm holding Harrison, we're just kind of walking around and he's happy and doing what a three-week-old or four-week-old does and it's just great. But then all of a sudden, maybe it's because of the books I'm reading and uh, just this crisis and just Hebrews 4.15, I, I can't explain it, but I just started weeping because my heart broke. I have five kids. And I think about little Harrison, I think, who, who's going to be his go-to? Who's going to be the dad that puts his hand on him when he's a three-year-old and says, hey, you're my favorite three-year-old in the whole wide world? Who's going to be the dad that says, I would do anything for you, son? Who's going to be the dad that's going to bless him? Who's going to be the mom that's going to nurture him and be there for him? What's his home? What, when, he, when he grows up, what is he going to say? Hey, this was home for me. Is he going to be bounced around? because the parents don't look like they're getting together. And we've, we've been, we've gone to court cases and I try to encourage the dad, dude, this is your moment, man. Change. But addiction is so tough. Who's going to be there for them? And it just crushed me. Crushed me. It's Ecclesiastes 1.18 that says this, where knowledge increases, sorrow increases. The more you know about this stuff, the more you just say, oh, Oh, my heart breaks for these two little lives. So that was Thursday. And then Friday morning, what I do is I outline a week, nine days in advance, because I think it's like a crock pot. I let that kind of thing stew in my heart for a while before I get back to it. So I jumped into Genesis 29, our text for today. And it helped me immensely, like only God can do. It helped me greatly. So turn with me if you would. I'm going to try to take you on the same journey I went on in Genesis 29. So I'm going to read a story and we're going to talk. Genesis 29:15. Then Laban, Laban is Uncle Rico from yeah, Napoleon Dynamite. He's that dude. Said to Jacob, Jacob is just as bad. These guys are made for each other. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, 
Should you therefore serve me for nothing? Jacob has now left his family, left his home, left everything, been a sojourner. He's now linked up with his uncle in a new land. Tell me what your wages should be. Now verse 16, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah or Princess Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I'll serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Did he really answer him? No, he's just kind of like, hmm, crafty. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife so that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? <laughs> Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, mm, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one and we'll give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Wow. What a story, huh? You read that. And what do you think? I think poor Leah, right? Poor Leah. I mean, look at what happens to her. It's crazy. And in verse 17, it says, that she had weak eyes. And you read commentaries and commentaries are trying to figure out like, what does weak eyes mean? And they don't want to say the obvious. So they tried all these other routes. They, one commentary said weak eyes meant she had blue eyes because in the desert, blue eyes, because they, they process ultraviolet rays differently, they're weak. So she must have had blue eyes. And then another one said, no, no, she was nearsighted. She couldn't see very far. And that's why she had weak eyes. But all you have to do is read the comparison to see what it means, right? If she truly was nearsighted, it would have said, hey, Leah was nearsighted, but her sister, wow, she could count the spots on a ladybug from 100 yards or 100 cubits, whatever, right? It doesn't say that. What does the comparison say? Leah was weak-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. What is this saying about Leah? She's not attractive. That's what it's saying. That's the comparison, right? She is the unattractive, 
older sister of beautiful, incredible Rachel, always living in the shadow of her younger sister. That's what she is. And then dad, Laban, the turkey, this is what he does. He knows he's got a problem. No one's gonna marry her. No one's gonna marry Leah. So he hatches this plan where he knows, hey, I can get rid of Leah so she won't be in my house forever, eating all my food for the rest of my life and spending my money. I'll get rid of Leah and I'll also get seven years of free service from this dude named Jacob, who's a really good worker. And so he hatches this plan and pulls it off and switches on the wedding night, the two ladies. And she would have been veiled heavily and it would have been dark. So Jacob would have had no idea. I mean, how crazy is this? And maybe right now you're getting mad at the Bible because you're like, how can the Bible do this, right? How can it be number one? How can it have polygamy where Jacob marries two gals? Please know this. The Bible only records things. It doesn't condone these things. What God condoned was Genesis chapter two, one man, one woman, one life. That's what God condoned. Brokenness makes everything else that we see. And we'll see that this uh, polygamous marriage is just a brutal thing for this entire family. We'll watch that unfold, all right? Secondly, you could be getting mad at this. Leah being ugly and overlooked and used. You can be mad at that. So let me be sarcastic for one minute because you might be saying, yeah, the Bible's so primitive. Look how it does this. Let me just be sarcastic for one minute. Aren't you so glad we live in the 21st century, modern, liberated, where a woman's looks don't matter anymore? I mean, just ask Instagram. They don't matter at all, right? No way. I would argue they matter more today than ever before, all right? This is just saying this is humans. Humans are this way, all right? Period. So Laban tricks, uses, deceives, does all this thing, really uses his daughter as a pawn to make himself more money. I mean, it's terrible. And then you have one of the saddest verses in the Bible right here in verse 25. So wedding night happens. And in the morning, verse 25 says this. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. <laughs> Jacob wakes up, looks over. Yuck! What? Jumps out and runs to his father-in-law. Sad, huh? One commentary said this, and I loved it. He said, Genesis 29, 25 is everything after Eden. You think you go to bed with Rachel and you wake up in the morning with Leah. You think this is gonna make me happy. This is gonna do it for me. I, I, oh, finally, I put all my hope in this thing. And in the morning, you say, oh, it's just Leah. If I just had that job, if I just had that woman, if I just had that man, if I just had that house, if I just had that car, if I just had that phone, if I just had that app, if I just had, it's, it's Rachel. All your hope is in it. And then it doesn't take long before you say, it's just Leah. It's not as attractive as I thought it was. He says, all of life after Eden is this giant disillusionment. <laughs> not very happy, is it? Well, there's this great chapter. If you want to read it, you can get it online. 
It's Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And it's a chapter on hope. I reread it yesterday. It's brilliant. It's short, it's brilliant. And this is what he says. He says, because of this, it's really on this text. He says, because of this disillusionment with life, you have two options. Either you say the universe is a fraud or he says, the other answer is you and I were created for a different universe. That the fact that we have this desire in us that's so deep that everything is Rachel, everything that we think is Rachel turns to Leah. He says, because we have this in us, it means this. It doesn't mean that universe is a fraud. It means you and I were created for something much bigger and greater than this world could ever give us. And he gives these examples. He goes, the little duckling has this desire to swim. You know why? Because there's really water. The, the little eaglet has this desire to soar and fly. You know why? Because there's this thing called flying. He says, if God has put this desire in us that's so great and so massive, it's not to leave us disillusioned and saying the world is a fraud, it's to keep reminding us you were created for something bigger and better than this world can ever give you. And you keep your hope in that. He goes, that's what allows you to enjoy everything else. We are created too great for this world. And I agree with that, right? And actually you really see this hope in Jacob. If you look at verse 21, like the Jewish commentaries, I love it because they try to like massage what he says because it's absolutely rude and blunt. Look what he says to his father-in-law. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her. What did Jacob just say to his father-in-law? Right? It should say, and Laban punched him in the face. It doesn't because they're both like, bad dudes, right? What did Jacob just say? Give me Rachel. I want to have sex with her. That's literally what he says. Because he, remember, Jacob is a broken dude. Dad overlooked him. Mom pampered him. He's lost everything. Character is terrible, right? So now he has pinned all of his hopes on, if I could just have sex with Rachel, life would be brilliant. Life would be perfect. I would have finally arrived. I think verse 21 is modern America. That now because we have lost everything else because of uh, existential thought and all this kind of enlightenment stuff, the only last frontier we have is sex. That's why it's so everywhere now. If I could just have sex with the right person, the right kind of sex, man, that'd be, make me happy. We're all verse 21 now. That's pervaded us as a culture. And so I read an article in the Washington Post. You can get it last week is a religious section. And the question they asked was this, why are young people leaving the church? Why are millennials seeming like they're for the, for like in droves, why are they unplugging from church? What is it that's doing that to them? And they said, well, maybe it's technology. Maybe it's science. Maybe it's evolution. Maybe it's this new brand of atheists the Richard Dawkins and the Christopher Hitchens and the, the Daniel Dennis. Maybe it's these new breed of atheists that are, that are presenting these arguments, right? And what they found was this, and I agree with them. It's none of those things. What is secularizing our youth, I'll read a quote for you from it. It says this, quote, we overestimate the effectiveness of scientific arguments to secularize people. It's not science that is secular, secularizing Americans, it is sex, end quote. And they provide ample evidence to show that's why. It's young people putting, putting their hopes in verse 21. 
I want to do this. And this isn't allowing me to do that. So I'm done with it. Interesting. So you have this situation now (laughs) where Leah is being used as this pawn between these two men, the unattractive, overlooked, born wrong Leah, bounced around, used, probably like many people feel today. Maybe the way you were born. Maybe like Harrison, you were born to parents that were addicts and you went through that and your life now reflects that just kind of, you know, childhood experiences. They shape you. Maybe there was abuse. Maybe you had a parent like Laban (laughs) who used you to make money off you. I don't know. There's all these things that are out of our control that we could say, oh, maybe you feel ugly or weird or awkward and you were born that way. And you keep saying, what's my hope then? The Harrisons, what's their hope? The Leahs, what's their hope? Well, look down at verse 31. This is where the story hinges and changes. When Yahweh saw, I have the word saw circled in my Bible. When Yahweh saw, that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Doesn't say God made her barren, just says that God opened Leah's womb. What's our hope? But Yahweh saw. And what happens? Verse 32, and Leah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because Yahweh has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Leah's the perfect wife now because 3,800 years ago, a good wife did what? Gave her husband sons. That was the highest thing you could do because you needed sons to work the farm and take care of you when you got older. You needed sons. And now she's like, I've got it. Reuben means literally Ben is son. Behold a son. Look, Jacob. I'm the perfect wife. Now you can love me. Finally, I'll be loved. Right? Now, again, I know some people will be like, this is again why I don't like the Bible. It looks at women as baby factories. Whenever you find something in the Bible that you say, hmm, I don't like that, you should always turn the mirror and see if there's the same thing today as well. All right? So I've said this before. I'll say it again. We can look back at this culture and say, yeah, look how oppressive that was to women, that they were just looked at as baby baby factories. That's how they got their value and their worth. And traditional cultures still do that. And we can be like, oh, that's why I don't like it about the Bible. And the, the forcing to be married to Jacob, I don't like that. Well, listen, I think we're worse today. What do you mean, Matt? My dad can't force me to marry some guy I don't want to be married to. I can marry whoever I want. Is that true? No, No, you can marry whoever you can attract. We live in a, I say, more oppressive society now to women because now you gotta be attractive all the time. You gotta be hip all the time. You gotta be funny all the time. You gotta be Pinteresty and successful and have a good Instagram account. Man, it's all the time. 
And you better always look really good 24-7, 365, because you have no idea who might be taking a picture of you and posting it somewhere, and you don't want to look awful in that picture. Man, it's unbelievable, the pressure now, right? So before it was, hey, you got your value from being uh, able to produce babies. Now women get their value from being sexy. So you better be sexy all the time. And God forbid that you ever grow old. Look out for that one. So always, always turn the mirror on yourself and your own culture when you see something. Sure, that's oppressive. Absolutely. So are we today. We got to be honest about that. So are we today. So here you have, she's the perfect wife. She's doing what she needs to do. She thinks Jacob's going to love me, does he? No, because look at the next verse. So she conceived again and bore a son and said, because Yahweh has heard that I'm hated. He didn't love her. He hates her, still hates her. Because Yahweh has heard that I'm hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Simeon is like Shema. It means to hear. I've been heard finally. I've got two sons. Wow, now Jacob's gonna finally love me. But does he? Nope. So verse 34. And again, she conceived and bore a son. Now this time, my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi or attached. Now I got three sons. I have as many boys as Sarah and Rebecca, the two matriarchs before me produced. I've got as many as them combined. I'm killing it. Touchdown. Now he's going to be attached to me. Nope. So now, verse 35, and she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I will praise Yahweh. Therefore, she called his name Judah, which means praise. And she ceased bearing kids. How about that? Son one, he'll love me. Son two, he'll hear me. Son three, he'll be attached to me. Son four, forget it. What she is saying is this, you know what? I can't force my husband to be something. I can't do that. I can't control that. I can't force him to love me. I can't force him to be attached to me. I can't force him to hear me. I tried. I tried that. I was perfect in every way. I can't control that. So instead, I'm going to stop putting my hope in having kids or putting my hope in being something my husband doesn't care about. I, I'm not going to put my hope in that. I'm going to praise Yahweh. I'm going to put my hope alone in him. So she, in a way, the unattractive, overlooked, shadowed older sister transcends her culture in a way that's brilliant. She steps out of it and just says, I'm not playing that game anymore. She becomes beautiful. I'm going to praise instead. I'm not going to put the kind of pressure on myself that I can never, ever do. I love that. This is brilliant. So what does this mean for Harrison, for Leah. Maybe you feel a little bit like that, overlooked, born, whatever it was. Maybe you feel that way. What does it mean for you? L let me say, here's what it means. Number one, you have to know this. It's verse 31. God saw. God sees. I have a saying, life is not fair, but God is. 
We live in a broken, shattered, corrupt, greedy, fractured world, okay? Life is not fair. Get that in your brain as soon as you can. Life will not be fair to you, but God will be. God sees what's happening here and God intervenes. And this is what God loves to do. Let me read a text for you. I love it. I think it's actually about this story. It's Isaiah 61. Listen to this. It's actually prophetic about Jesus. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Evil's gonna get it. God has it out for evil. Vengeance is coming on evil. And to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may be glorified. What glorifies God? When he looks at the unattractive, overlooked Leah, and he sees that and changes it. That's exactly what this text says. And then verse seven says, instead of shame, you shall be given double. If you feel shame about your child, if you feel shame about something, God says, I alone, I alone can give you double for that shame. Number one, you've got to know this, God sees. And you can choose now knowing that to skip from verse 25 all the way down to verse 34 and say, okay, because I know that, I'm gonna praise him. Because I know that, I'm gonna put my hope in him alone. Because I know that I'm not gonna try to control the things I cannot, the people I cannot, past that I cannot. I'm gonna jettison that. I'm gonna concentrate on what I can control. I'm gonna praise Yahweh, period. You can skip all that intervening drama and go directly to verse 35. That's number one. And number two, God is the anti-venom. What you see, I think, in Scripture is from Genesis 3 on, what happened to the human was this. We were bit by the snake and it's poisoned us. And instead of living in community and in cooperation, which we actually live, we live like Labans. How can I use people to get what I want? How can I judge people by the way they look instead of the way they are? That we are all bit by a snake and it's poisoning and it poisons us and makes us cruel. We're all Laban in a way. We're all Jacob deceivers in some way. But God, he's the anti-venom to that. So notice the name of the last child. It's what? Judah. Does that name ring a bell in anyone's mind? Right? What line comes from Judah? The kings, King David, King Solomon, King Jehoshaphat. King Josiah, and eventually there comes one called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Leah, Leah, there's this line that is woven from Genesis 3.15 because Genesis 3.15 is 
the prophecy that says there's coming one from the seed of a woman who's gonna crush the serpent's head. And that line goes from Eve all the way through, not beautiful, gorgeous, Rachel. It goes through overlooked, shadowed, weak-eyed, Leah. It's God saying to her, I'm gonna make it up to you. You're gonna have a son, a great, 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 great grandson who's gonna be God himself. You are in the line of divinity. You are there. I love that. That's God's business. God says this, Jesus. He says, the first shall be last and the last shall be... The one you thought was last. Oh, I'm gonna reverse that thing. God says this, now unto him that's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that he, we could ask or think, be the glory. That's God. God loves to use the weak things of the world to confound the wise, 1 Corinthians chapter one. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, God loves to take the uncomely parts of the body and give them more honor. The one you thought, ah, oh, nothing for him. God says, that's the one that you're gonna see has more honor than anyone else. God is the anti-venom. He's the one that's able to take the curse and turn it into a blessing. Only God can do that. And I know that because of my own life. I should be a statistic. My older brother is a statistic. My younger brother right now is working on making those statistics even worse. I should be there too. But for the grace of God and him grabbing a hold of my life and seeing and intervening, that's exactly what I would be. God is the anti-venom. So what does this mean then? What do I do with that? Two things and I'm done. Here's what it led me to do Friday morning. Number one, to praise. I started praising God because Psalm 68.5 says this about God. It says that he is the father to the fatherless. God, you love Harrison. You love Hunter. You love these kids that have come through our home. You love them. You protect them. You be the father for them. You see what's happening in their life and you protect them and you come alongside of them. That's number one, what it caused me to do. God, you intervene in their life. And I'm gonna wait expectantly because that's what God glorifies. It glorifies him to do that. That's number one. You praise and you pray. Number two though, is just as important for a believer. You say, how can I partner? Because while Psalm 88, five, Psalm 68, five, excuse me, says that God is the father of the fatherless. There's another Psalm, it's Psalm 82. It's one of the most fascinating Psalms in the Bible. Speaking out something that people always are like, what is that? But verse three says this, that leaders, great leaders are supposed to be after the cause of the fatherless. So not only is God the father to the fatherless, God says to leaders, you should be involved in this as well. So I pray about the things I cannot control. There's 350 Foster care kids in Grants Pass. I can't help them all. So I pray. But then I say, God, I can partner in Harrison and Hunter's life. I can partner with you there. I can see you wring good from evil that only, like only God can do. Genesis 50, 20. I can see you wring from, so God, how can I partner in that work? How can I see good come from evil in this situation? Use me. And I'll tell you, there's nothing better in this life than been being used in Jesus's great reclamation project. Because he came 
and started a kingdom that spread and is to reclaim everything that's been broken here. And you and I, as believers, as partners in that, we get to join with him in that. And it's brilliant. There's no better work in the world than being involved in the reclamation project that Jesus started 2,000 years ago. And so I say, God, how can I be used in that? And I think every one of us can be used in some way. Maybe you can't open your homes to foster care kids. I get that, no doubt. I couldn't if it wasn't for my wife. There's no way. I mean, she, if anyone's gonna change Grant's past, it's my wife, it's not me. She's brilliant. Totally, I get that. But we've got safe families. And there's all these ways that you can be involved in safe families, cooking meals, giving rides. There's all these ways, anybody with a heartbeat that's uh, bipedal and upright could help in this some way, all right? So help, say, God, how can I partner in this? And this is how we see evil pushback. This is how we see it. Each of us can be used in that. And it's amazing. And maybe today, you need a little help. Maybe today you are feeling maybe like a Harrison. Family wasn't there. Born into circumstances that were very hard and you're still struggling with the repercussions of that. I get that. There are flashbacks that you can have and stuff from violence and I totally, 100%. Maybe you feel a little bit like a Leah, Leah, that you've been kind of pawned around and used and you're suffering from that. Here's what I'd love for us to be able to do for you today. We wanna pray with you. And in prayer, maybe we can partner with you as well. So if you feel that way, there'll be some guys down here, some gals down here. We just wanna pray for you. Lay hands on you and pray that God would take what the enemy wants to use for evil and he would turn it for good as only he can do, that he would reclaim those broken areas in your life, that he would be Isaiah 61 for you, that your shame, would be, you'd be given double for that shame. We'll pray that. And maybe some of you on this last Sunday outside need to finally be baptized where you say, I'm identifying myself as team Jesus. That's what baptism is. That you've already decided in your heart to believe. And so now you say, I, I wanna put on the jersey so everybody, principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness, everybody knows I'm team Jesus. Then you come up and you be baptized. And you and I, when we do those two things, prayer and partner, what I found if I do those well, when I lay my head on my pillow at night, I do hear whispered into my heart, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the joy of the Lord. There's nothing more joyful than that. So Jesus, this day, I don't know anyone that does not feel like a Harrison or like a Leah because we live in a world that has been so corrupted and so trashed and so fractured that evil is like a grenade. It just hits all the bystanders. So this day, Lord, I pray for Isaiah 61, that you would be binding up those whose hearts have been broken, maybe by fathers or by mothers, 
my family, my uncles, my hurtful people, that you would bind up those brokenhearted. That you'd be setting people free who have been put into a prison because of upbringings. That you would break those bars. That you would, in our city, Lord, be breaking the evil of drug addiction. That you use each one of us in that, Lord. That we'd be partnering with you and seeing this scourge end in our beautiful city. Help us in that. Guide us in that, I ask. I pray, Lord, for the fatherless in Josephine County. I pray, first, you'd be the best father ever to them. And I pray, secondly, you'd get a bunch of us to partner with you in that work. And I ask these things in your name. Amen. God bless you guys.